0: Good morning. My name is Matt, and I am one of the pastors here at Roswell, and it's great to see you um, on... Apparently, spring is here. Yes. I don't know. It's what you say in Atlanta when things change. Um, I wanted to, Before I jump into the sermon, I, I just want to echo the, the survey thing. It's really, really important. We actually read everything you say. Everything you write, we breathe, we pray, we ask questions about it. So it really matters. just want you to know your voice matters. Um, I did also want to say... Uh, I wanted to say how significant um, last Sunday was uh, for me and for my family. It is, uh, I was sharing a little bit about our son Nathan deploying and uh, kind of impromptu, a couple of folks got together and decided to pray over our family. And, uh, you know, it always gets a little, I get a little awkward, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And other people have needs. And um, it was really impactful for me, for Becky, for, for Haley and Hutan. And I got to tell my daughter-in-law about it, my son. And anyway, I just... I love this place. Like, you guys are awesome people. And to feel not only the hands, but the prayers of people over us, um, it was really, really meaningful. So I just wanted to say thank you. Like, I feel loved by these, by this community, by you all. Um, and that was a pretty special moment. And I just wanted to say thanks. So, um, we are uh, in a series in the book of Acts. We just began a few weeks ago. And,. Uh, uh, the book of Acts is one of those incredibly exciting, fast-paced. A lot of things happen in a short amount of time. Uh, kind of book. It's it's a narrative, which means that there's all kinds of like prescriptive things, but maybe in some descriptive things, and you have to kind of sort through what's descriptive, what's prescriptive. There's there's a, there's some of the most important moments in the history of the world that take place in in the ascension of Christ, and in what we're going to look at today, in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as God pours out His Spirit on his people. So, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, what a text! What a moment! it's not realistic in this few minutes that we have together here this morning to try and actually put ourselves into that moment. But, but your spirit has something for each person in this room because your word does not return void. And so I asked gracious father who loves his people, would you speak to us? Holy spirit, would you infuse? Would you deepen? Would you remind us? Would you tell us what is true? that we may be grown and strengthened and deepened in our love for you, our delight in you and our love for one another in the world to the praise of your glory. Amen. What we're going to do this morning is we are going to just join the crowd. The crowd finds himself at the end of these 13 verses saying, asking one question, what does this mean? What does this mean? And, um, There are a lot of answers to what does this mean, and and Peter is going to take, uh, well, several verses in the rest of chapter two to talk about what does this mean in a certain context. He's going to explain a bunch of different things, but but we want to ask that question from what we've already seen in this passage. What does this mean? And again, we could talk about what does this mean that it's happening on Pentecost, and there's all kinds of cool stuff and commentaries about how this is awesome that it's happening on Pentecost. We don't have time to go there this morning. So if you'd like to read about that, I got some great commentaries for you. We're going to ask one fundamental and central question, and that is, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I'm deeply grateful to my mentor from a distance, Tim Keller. It's been a while since I've used his name, and he just needs some love. He's not a pastor or a redeemer anymore, you know, so he's just deeply grateful for his contribution to my thinking in some of this. He's opened my mind to some things that I was like, What? So really grateful. So shout out to Tim. Thank you, Lord, for Tim Keller. Um, in, uh, in verse four, look at it. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, something important to distinguish as we step into this section, that uh, there's a distinction and a difference between what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we see happening here and what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place here on Pentecost for the first time. It's a one-time event for the first time in the history of the world. The Spirit of God is being poured out, not just on people, which happened in the Old Testament, but in people, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a one-time event that happened once and then happens for every believer as they place their faith in Christ. They receive one time, once and for all, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is not the same thing as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, it can be confusing because we're at Pentecost and they both are baptized in this Holy Spirit and are filled with the Holy Spirit. Both happen simultaneously because there's a lot going on and it's a very exciting time. But they're not exactly the same thing, okay? And here's the difference. That when you are filled with the Holy Spirit... It's not a. I'm I'm getting extra, a little extra dose of the Holy Spirit. It is actually an empowering by the Spirit, a, a release by the believer, to the indwelling, controlling, and assuring work of the Holy Spirit in us. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a is a permanent reality that takes place at the new birth. The filling of the Holy Spirit is a repeated experience. Which is why when, when Paul is talking in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, uh, We'll talk about this passage in a little bit. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What that literally means is keep on being filled with the Spirit. Peter here receives the Holy Spirit and is filled with the Holy Spirit. But we're going to see in chapter 4 that, well, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit again. We're going to see that, that Stephen in Acts chapter 7, as he's about to be martyred. And as he's speaking, it says Stephen was. Filled with the Holy Spirit. we see that Paul and Barnabas are, are filled with the Holy Spirit repeatedly in chapter 9, 11, and 13. There's this repeated reality of the Holy Spirit filling the people of God. So in summary, baptism of the Holy Spirit. One time, permanent indwelling of every believer at conversion. Filled with the Spirit is the repeated experience brought about by God on believers as he pleases. Cool? Baptism filled? Good. We are informed. So now, let us return to our question. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? This is not being baptized by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, let's look at verse 2. It says, oh, so the first thing we we're going to say that about about what it means to be filled with the spirit is that to be filled with the spirit is to be rescued from the outside. It's to be rescued from the outside. Verse 2 says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, it's not actual wind, okay? No, no gale storm wind was flying around inside the building. It says it was a sound, and it was like rushing wind like a mighty wind. But, but one thing that is very clear about it is that it was experienced. It was something that, that didn't emanate from inside of like, I sense that we're having something going on. No, something was coming to them from the outside. To be filled with the Spirit, it says actually it was coming from heaven. To be filled with the Spirit means to have the divine power come from outside to us. To come into us. It's not it's not some emotion, it's not some experience that we generate from within. It comes from heaven. It comes from outside. And, and ironically, that's a reality that is immediately at odds with what we hear pervasively in, in, in our in our culture. This is what I mean. Becky and I, a couple of years ago, started watching The Voice. It's um it's probably because we like karaoke, I'm not sure. We have no aspirations of being on The Voice. That's why we turn my mic off um, when I was singing. But um, we live the show. It's fun to watch, um, but one of the things that happens all the time on that show, and sometimes it happens from contestants when they're told like, why are you here? And, um, and, but particularly it comes out of the mouths of the coaches. And usually they'll say something like this. They'll say, listen, Joe or Jane, You can be anything you want. You can be a star. You have the power inside of you to make anything happen for yourself. Sound familiar? I mean, do do you hear it? I mean, I I hear it all the time. That feels like, I mean, I'm, I'm picking on the voice, but like it's everywhere. Everyone's like, listen, you can be anything you want. It's all in you. Just let it come out. Like be free enough to be able to experience and let that be. The current cultural refrain is that the power, I'm sorry, is that the problem is, is, is outside of me, not the power. The problem is outside of me, and that the solution is inside me, that the primary, what needs to be altered most is other people. And other circumstances like, you know, systems of broken and just unfaithful systems like families or whatever that, that are happening at me from, from the outside, then that will make my life satisfying and fulfilling and meaningful and, and peaceful problem is that the scripture literally says the very opposite of that the scripture says something very differently. It says that Luther's famous incurvatus say that, that we're, Curved in on ourselves. We're all turned in on ourselves. That the world is about us and about me. And and my entire disposition left to myself is to be about me. That all of us, I had fun writing this sentence, that all of us are little autonomous self-serving balls of sinful mayhem that crash into each other. That's the problem with the world it's me. The problem with the world is, is you. It's inside of you. It's inside of me. And therefore, the only, only real hope is, a, is a, a fundamental dif- for a fundamentally different world and for a fundamentally different personal experience is for something to come from the outside, a divine power to come to me and to begin to reside in me. In the past couple of decades, we've we've so flooded, and this is not picking on it, but we've so flooded kids and sometimes education with, with self-esteem, that we've set up an entire culture that that's looking and saying, it's not me, it must be you. And, and obviously, I work with people in their marriages and sometimes with their children, and and the natural inclination of the heart is not like. I wonder what I, what am I contributing to? What's my, what's my contribution to this mess? It's if they would just, if she would just, honestly, I think everything would be a lot better. I would be a better person because clearly the problem is over there and and, and that's pervasive. I mean, it's so in the air. We don't even smell it anymore. We don't see it in other people and we usually go, yeah, it is them. I'm really sorry. But do you see how hopeless that is? If all the problems are other people and and, and other circumstances, then circumstances and people, which of course you don't actually have control over, regardless of what we think, then it's a despairing life. It's a frustrating life. It's a fearful life. It's a controlled life. It's an angry life. If the main problem is you, you're so glad you came to church today, aren't you? If the main problem is you, this is good news. There's really good news. Because God at Pentecost sent something to change that in you. He sent divine power into to change what is inside, that we may be different people. So that's a far more hopeful reality. That regardless of what the circumstances and regardless of what the people, whoever they may be, may do, or, it is well. Because God has come in power through his spirit. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It means to be rescued from the outside. What it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit is also means to be renewed on the inside. Verse 3 says, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on Each of them in the old Testament, when, when God was going to appear, when he was going to show up and when his presence was going to be manifested, it's always with fire. I mean, like over and over again, you look at Abraham, when he has, when God establishes his covenant with him in Genesis 15, how does God show up? Burning torch, burning pot. When, when, When God meets with Moses out in the wilderness saying, Hey, I'm about to change your world radically and the history of the world. How does he meet with him? burning bush. It's like a Bible class. When God is going to lead his people out of of Egypt and into the wilderness, how does he manifest his presence at night? Pillar of fire. When when God comes down in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 at Mount Sinai, this this is actually one of the first Pentecosts on Mount Sinai, 50 days after the Passover, he shows up and says, Here's the law here, the Ten Commandments, And he shows up in smoke and fire and thunder and trumpets. The whole mountain's shaking. It says, and the fire of the Lord came upon the mountain. When Ezekiel's talking about seeing the glory of the Lord, Ezekiel chapter one, there's like fire everywhere. There's multiple descriptions of, of the fire. So the presence of the Lord and fire. And yet the universal experience of people who experience the presence of the Lord is fire is like, I would like to take a few steps back. When, when the law comes, the people are like, honestly, God, we don't want to hear from you anymore. We're just going to send Moses up the hill, and you talk to him, and he'll talk to us, because, because you're too much. Your presence, your glory manifested in this, this awe-inspiring fire. I, I can't, we can't deal with it. We, we can't deal with you. We, we, need, we need a mediator. Moses became that mediator. God's special presence, the manifestation of his glory... His relational presence is manifested in fire. So, do you see how significant it is that on Pentecost, after Christ has risen and ascended, that fire distributes itself. That the manifest presence of God for the first time is not coming boom, but is splitting out over. His disciples, that that Christ's life is now going to be in each individual person. That's no longer unbearable, but that His presence is now on and in everyone. And what's awesome about it is that it doesn't just fall on the apostles. I mean, clearly those guys had gotten some a very particular kind of ordination from Jesus, but but it's not just them. It's not like and. And the tongues of fire split out over the twelve? No. Every living soul, on each of them, men and women, clergy and non-clergy, the rich, the poor, the educated, the illiterate, the presence of God, the glory of God breaking out over all people, distributed to all. The presence of God in fire distributing itself over his disciples, but what is it? feel like? What what does it look like? What's the experience of being filled with the Spirit? It says the tongues go out and they are filled with the Spirit. We're going to have a lot more opportunity to talk about how the Spirit of God works in ministry, in effecting change, in miracles. There's a lot of that coming as we head through the book of Acts. But I want to focus particularly this morning on one, what I believe is probably the most central thread of what the role of the Holy Spirit is, what it means for the Holy Spirit to fill us in New Testament understanding of the Spirit. So let me just unpack this briefly. I think Paul describes it best in, uh, in Romans chapter 8. This is what it says. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. In in Galatians 4, Paul's going to say basically the same thing. He's going to say, because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God sends his Spirit into our hearts, and he makes a declaration. To be filled with the Spirit... We see it when Jesus is baptized the spirit comes down as a dove and from the voice of the father what is declared This is my beloved son in him I am well pleased the, the, the declaration of sonship the declaration of being his daughter his his child the job of the spirit not the only job of the spirit but the job of the spirit in the life of the believer is to come in and to tell us about the Father's love for us, his delight in us, and to rehearse in us the fact that we are his children. How does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit all the way through the final conversation he had with his disciples in the upper room. And both in in John 14 and John 16, he hits a couple key areas. He says, he's talking to them about the Holy Spirit, and he says in John 14, says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Later in chapter 16, he says, he will take of what is mine and he will declare it to you. He will take of what is mine and he will declare it to you. What Jesus is saying and these things is that there are things that I've told you, namely that you are now sons and daughters of God. I've told you these things. And with the Holy Spirit, he's going to do. He's going to take what you now hear and know in your head. And he's going to drive it into your heart. He's going to make it experientially real, not just intellectually understandable. When the spirit comes, he will make it real in your heart he will make it a fiery reality in your life. Maybe the, the best illustration of what this looks like, what does it mean? What's the, what's a picture of what it looks like when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit acts in this way on us it comes from an illustration that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones gave, uh, he talks about it in his book, joy unspeakable. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is an gr- amazing preacher. I'm just the dude, dude could preach. Um, but he's describing the difference between the, the the common Christian living experience and what happens when the Holy Spirit, what he calls, clothes us with power or fills us with himself. He says that it's like, it's like a child walking alongside his father, holding his hand, and, and all is well, and the, and the child is happy. Feels secure. He believes that his father loves him. There's no unusual urge to necessarily talk about it or, or to sing praises or anything about it. But it's just true and it's, and it's pleasant. And, but the, but, but suddenly, suddenly, as they're walking along the street, the father turns and unexpectedly picks up the son, picks up the child. And pulls him tight, squeezes him and kisses him on his neck and whispers, I love you. You have no idea how much I love you, and then taking the child and pulling it out off away from it, looking it straight in the face, saying, "Do you know how glad I am that you are my child?" I am delighted that you belong to me." And with one last pull, one last hug, puts the child back on the ground. Some of asked, what's the difference between the reality for the son when he was walking and when he was being held. Well, legally, none. He was a son when he's walking and he's a son when he's held. Objectively, he was just as much a son as he was in his father's arms. But experientially, he was knowing and understanding the delight of the father in him. He was filled up. And this is what Lloyd-Jones says. He said, the child is simply stunned. He doesn't know whether to cry or shout or fall down or run. He is so happy. The fuses of love are so overloaded, they almost blow out. The subconscious doubts that he wasn't thinking about at the time, but that pop up every now and then are gone. And in their place is utter and indescribable assurance So that you know, that you know, that you know that God is real and that Jesus lives and that you are loved and that to be saved is the greatest thing in the world. And as you walk on down the street, you can scarcely contain yourself and you want to cry out, my father loves me. My father loves me. Oh, what a great father I have. What a father, what a father. That's what it means to be filled with the spirit. The sense of what a father I have. He delights in me. He, he has chosen me and he fall under the joy of the weight of his joy and his love. The normal Christian life is walking hand to hand in the father and it is interrupted by moments of sheer delight of being filled with the Spirit. And if you haven't experienced that kind of a, a startling, overwhelming delight, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not filled with the Spirit and you don't have the Holy Spirit, or you haven't been remade in Christ. But there is something about this, as I said, that we are filled with the Spirit as God chooses and pleases. And one of the manifestations of the filling of the Spirit is this kind of surety in the soul, this kind of I am beloved and loved and it is so Completely well. But let me say this the, the miraculous and the supernatural, which the experience of God's love in that kind of way is miraculous and, and supernatural. And it's an incredible thing. It's something that I'm only now personally getting into a place where I, I feel more and more comfortable asking God for. I, I want to see more of it in my own life. It's actually something I'm learning to pray for you. And we this morning it was we were praying in there we were just we we're just praying that God would do wild and amazing things in your life, that He would surprise you with His greatness, and I want to see it happen in our church. But the supernatural and the miraculous alone have never anchored anyone in long term faithfulness and holiness. It's never been. It's not the final. It's not the most powerful anchor. The way you know is, you know, the children of Israel walked through the Red Sea on dry land. And a month later, they're melting their gold in an orgy as they bow down to a calf. That was a pretty amazing miracle. Can all of us go, you know what? If I walked through a, a sea that was open on dry ground with water on each side and most of the painting, you can see the whale going through. You know? that, was, that was their experience, clearly. Um, if that's the experience we'd had, I mean, like, I'm not melting my gold. Right? I mean, we're all, we're, all, we're all self-righteous enough to think that. Come on, right? No, it doesn't hold you. The miraculous won't hold you. It only confirms the thing that has been true all along. Miracles won't sustain your soul. Only Jesus Christ sustains your soul. Only a pervading, grounding, regularly refreshed soul understanding through the word, through prayer, through worship through, through community, through taking these elements, only that regular movement of walking with God gives the moments of ecstasy a place to land. They feel something that is already real and true. So, do you want to be filled with the Spirit? I'm serious, Do you want to be filled with the Spirit? I do. I like guess not, you don't have to apologize. I know we're like serious people here. And i like, you don't have to apologize. You, it's okay. You can have it ask for it. I think that's one of the things that struck me out of this, out of this passage. And and if God delights to give good gifts to his, to his children, ask for it. I've met with some of you guys that are, they're struggling. it's, It's a season of dryness. Like, where is God? Does he love me? Does he care about anything that's in my life? Like, does it matter? Wrestling with your faith. And I think if I'm not mistaken, I can, some of you guys can attest to this. One of the first things I usually say are like, are you asking Him? Like, are you asking to see his face? Are you asking him to like sweep you up off the ground unexpectedly to confirm the thing that you're like, I know this is true, but it doesn't feel like it's true. It doesn't seem like it's true. Are you asking him to take you and to do what only he can do to be swept up, drawn into his delight without, and to ask it without demanding it, like you better or we're done and without The absence of it sowing seeds of doubt in your life. It's at his good pleasure. At his good pleasure. So let us walk alongside our father asking him, fill us with your spirit that we may know that we are sons and daughters. And how does it manifest itself? How does, how does this filling with the Spirit manifest itself? Well, it, it looks like drunkenness. I mean, that's, that's what happens. That's what it kind of looks like. You saw in verse 13, it said, "In some mock saying, uh, they're high on on new wine. Well, Paul picks up this picture a little bit in, in the passage I, I read earlier in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. He says, do not be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes. Okay. Suddenly, I was like, "Wait, is right?" You should, I could read, but I just was quoting. So, that's correct. Don't be drunk with wine; be filled with the Spirit. So, there's something about being drunk that's like being filled with the Spirit. It's just it's being filled with the Spirit. It's better. Okay, and and different, but better. Okay, just so we're clear. It's like being drunk in that when people are drunk, they seem to be more happy. Now, not always there's grumpy drunks and there's, there's angry drunks and all that. There's no, but there's a sense of when people are drunk, their inhibitions drop, right? Everything, they seem to be able to be freer, more themselves, right? It's like nothing can hurt me, which is why people do stupid stuff when they're drunk, right? Because I'm indestructible. No, I don't care what people think, right? Well, being filled with the Spirit's like that. That's one of the ways in which they they are alike, that when you're filled with the Spirit, you're like these guys who apparently, the Spirit comes, they run outside, and they're making such a commotion, and we'll see in a minute, declaring the mighty works of God. They're making such a commotion that a whole bunch of people gather around to say, what in the world is going on? So there's this blessed self-forgetfulness in being filled with the Spirit. That's like being drunk, but but it's not like being drunk in that, it, for those of you who remember your health textbooks from high school, uh, alcohol is a depressant, right? You guys knew that? It's like weed. It's a depressant. It doesn't mean that you get depressed when you drink, okay? It's not the same thing because you're like, wait a minute, everyone seems so happy sometimes. It, it's, no, no. It, it's a depressant in that what it does is that it, it suppresses the activity of your brain. Another way of saying it is it makes you dumber, that's, that's what alcohol, it. it suppresses the activity and, and the function of, of your brain so that you don't care. You're not thinking. And what's, what's happening is that you're not able to see anymore what all of reality really is. You can't read facial expressions when people are like doing this. You're not reading that anymore because, because you're dumber. You've been, your brain has been suppressed a little bit. It's been, it's been shut down a little bit. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. It's not a a blessed self forgetfulness because I have no concept of what's actually going on right now. I I don't see reality as it is anymore. Drunkenness hides reality from me what's really wrong in and around me. The Holy Spirit's not a depressant, the Holy Spirit gives joy through understanding. Just like we just saw, he shows us ultimate reality. What is true, true, true. He declares to our hearts that the only person whose opinion and whose power matters has done and is willing to do anything on our behalf. That he has and will move heaven and earth. That he has done all things for me. He gave everything for me that he will never let me go and that he will make me and all things new. That's the ultimate reality that the Holy Spirit is declaring. It's not a suppression. It's actually a deeper broadening. Oh, this is really what's going on here. You see, one of the beautiful things that happened when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, when there's a sense of like the Lord is for me, he is with me. Like, what can man do to me? Like, here we go. Erwin uh, McManus said something years ago that always stuck with me. He said, I think I've quoted it before, that the most dangerous person in the world is the person who has nothing to lose. The most dangerous person in the world is the person who has nothing to lose because he's got nothing to lose. Well, if you've got nothing to lose because you're, de- you know, you're depressed, you're not thinking, well, then you're, not, you're dangerous because like, you're dangerous, like scary dangerous. But if you've got nothing to lose because you have already gained everything, Because the truest ultimate reality is that it is so well with you and for you and to you that the spirit is declaring that into your soul, both regularly and then in ecstatic moments of his filling. Oh, by golly, you're the most dangerous person in the world. And what's awesome is that as we shoot off into acts, we're going to see some of the most dangerous people in the world ever that are not afraid to make fools of themselves, Paul will do it multiple times. I'd lose my mind. I sound like an idiot. Here's the truth. We're going to see people die. And and instead of of being angry, they're going to go, I see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. I see ultimate reality, the truest thing. So, Father, forgive them. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. and, And that's what I want for us. That's what I want for me. That we would be people who have been moved by God, declare deeply into the DNA of our souls over and over again. That we belong to him. That he has made us for something significant and that he will never let us go. I got myself all preaching. Now I'm late. So, okay. So, what does it mean to be filled with the spirit? It means being rescued from the outside. It means being renewed on the inside in order that we may declare the wonders of god to the world that we may declare as we see in verse 11 that we may tell the mighty works of god there's a there's a proclamation here what it means to be filled with the spirit is that I am so certain and so clear on what ultimate reality is about God and about me that I start talking about how awesome he is. You'll notice they don't talk. It doesn't seem that like they're not talking about themselves. Though There will be plenty of testimonies by Paul and even Peter about, about what God has done with them and for them. And that's tangibly a real witness but they're telling about how awesome and amazing God is. The, the mighty works of God, I won't get into the Greek on that, but basically they're talking about the redemptive work that God has accomplished for his people through time. In the Old Testament, that's the, you know, walking through the Red Sea, getting, getting rescued out of Egypt. It's those, can you believe that God did this on our behalf? Not because we deserved it, but because that's who he is. But then in the New Testament, when they're talking about the mighty works of God, they're talking about the redemptive work in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. They're like, you got to hear. You got to hear about this Jesus. There's a personal witness. Let me tell you about this Jesus who has come from the outside to rescue me from the hopelessness that would have existed without him. Let me tell you about this Jesus who's reconciled me with the father and now has filled me with a renewed sense of what it means to be loved and delighted in as a child. Let me tell you about this Jesus about the surety that I have in the ordinary walk and then the jubilant experience, let me tell you about him, what he has done. We bear witness. It's one of the reasons why we put that underneath there. Bearing witness to Jesus. When God's people are filled with the Spirit, they know who they are in him, and they know what they're sent for in his name. And the two must go together. They, they must go together. And I've said this before. We are strong in reminding you. And I don't apologize for this. We are strong in reminding you of the magnitude of what it means for you that you belong to him. That you're a son and a daughter of the king. I firmly believe that because that's, the, in my opinion, the central work of the Spirit, that that's also the preparatory work of the Spirit in order to send us to declare, to, to, bear, to bear witness. And what's awesome about it, and this is one of those things that, you know, it's a little bit humbling as we look at this passage because it's hard to not look at Christianity through our lens, our little brand of Christianity that, that we have here. But one of the awesome things about when the Holy Spirit came is that simultaneously, the message went out in every language, basically, nearly every language. I mean, you saw the list of names there. Read those in public a couple times. Those are, that's, but but that's, that's basically almost every culture of the known world at the time. And what Luke's trying to say here is everyone heard the same message of the gospel, the mighty works of God. They heard the same message, and they heard it in their heart language and the way in which they move, and the way to which they understand reality. They they heard it, and they heard it simultaneously. They didn't hear it in Hebrew, and then a bunch of people translated. No, God was undoing the Tower of Babel. He He was undoing that. He was sending a whole new set of people with the message of the gospel in the context of their culture. Like, do you know how huge that is? Like, if you think about, like, if those of you who've studied Islam, you know this, like, you can't be a Muslim and, and read the Quran and and even actually be taught the Quran unless it's in Arabic, like like no joke. Like Allah speaks Arabic; he doesn't speak any other languages. So you may have like an English version of the Quran, but that's not the Quran. You ask any Muslim; it's not the Quran. It's just an English explanation of the Quran. But but that's not how God works. Through the Holy Spirit, simultaneously, there's a leveling everybody gets the message in their culture, in their context through language, because language is the barrier, the the carrier of culture. Everyone gets it simultaneously. And what that means for us is that God has given you a message and it must be spoken. And secondly, that our version of Christianity is not the best. It's not the first. No one gets to claim that. No one. That the gospel comes into any culture and it judges it. It it cuts it. It brings a, a certain kind of renewal to, to customs and to values. No one's n- no one's immune. Not Chinese, not African culture, not Western culture. No one's immune from the gospel. It slices and it slices deep, and it brings about something renewed. But it does not flatten it. It actually pours itself into a cultural context, and it f- allows the culture to flourish. Which is why, when you go to other parts of the world, you experience Christians worshiping God in ways that are like. Wow, this is different, but it's not better, and you're not better. and one of the terrible things that were that was done in the, the movement of missions, unfortunately, oftentimes from the Western world, was to try and impose impose a way, a cultural construct on the gospel and it did a lot of damage and like we're cleaning that mess up still, I think. My parents are missionaries, so we get to talk about that stuff. Do you understand how? how beautiful that is for the kind of God that we're talking about, like that he wanted the best news in the world to belong to everyone. That in in a, in a time in the world where everyone's like Christianity is so narrow. It's, it's, it's so intolerant. It's so that the gospel is one in, in in, at Pentecost, the declaration is poof, here it goes. And it goes to everyone. It's going to look different. And so, so let us be humble people. Let us be humble people with the message of the gospel. Let us be active people with the message of the gospel. Let us learn from others. Let us be awakened by the beauty that one day, scripture says, every tribe and nation and tongue will worship before the Lord, not and will finally be all melded into one thing and sing this way and not dance this way, and would not wave flags this way. That's the future. And that's one of the beautiful manifestations of people being filled with the spirit, is that they're able to look around and say, and this is beautiful, and this is good, and this is also good. It's not necessarily what we are or what we have, we offer something different, which is also good and beautiful and also needs to be refined by the gospel. That's one of the beautiful things about Pentecost. How do we become these kind of people? How, how do we know that we know that we know that our Father reigns? Um, in his kindness, God said, every time you're together, you're going to have to rehearse this one thing, which is going to be the clearest declaration about my deep love for you. This is going to be an opportunity for your heart and mind to try and Try and grasp around the neck of the Father as you seek to experience his arm saying, for you, I came for you, I died for you. Ultimate reality is manifested and described here. I don't know what's going on in all your lives, but I can tell you one thing. You're not in short supply of knowing that you're loved. You're not in short supply of knowing that all of life is not up to you. And that's some of what this table reminds us of, is that, it's not up to you. It's certainly not all up to you. And it is well with your soul. So as we come and as we receive, I, I want to invite you to maybe risk a little bit and to ask God that he, would, that he would fill you with his spirit more and more. That you would be on the lookout to see how he has done his mighty works in you. I mean, just a minute earlier, I was, I was talking with, with Dre and he's telling me about what happened in the accident that unfolded. And it's, I just, I mean, immediately I was like, and he's like, and I don't understand how it didn't burn my face. It just doesn't make any sense. It should It's right here. And my first thought, I didn't tell you that Dre, my first thought was like, maybe it's the mighty works of God because, because that's what he does. He, he cares for his children. I mean, I know your arms all burnt, but, but he, God loves his people. And, and there he is. Oh, and there he is. Oh, and there he is. So together, when we come and we do this, we're declaring to one another, "Here he is." Let's pray. Father, I, I, by your mercy, I pray that we've been able to see you, and and that your spirit and his job, his role, his um, his stirring up has. As taking on even just the smallest amount of not only hope but expectancy that we that our hearts have been stirred to desire you more, Lord, we can't even manufacture our own good affection towards you without your Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, we, in a sense, we bow down and say, without you it is hopeless, but with you all things can be. So we want to see you, we want to know you more. We want our hearts to be filled more and more significantly with the beauty. Of Christ Jesus, our Lord, that he may be not only in our hearts experientially, that he may be on our lips in our relationships. Make us bearers of Jesus, proud, joyful, indestructible bearers of Jesus. And that, that, may, that may that reflect all the praise and glory to you and may be of encouragement to one another as we tell each other the great works of God in our lives. We love you, Father. Pray this in Christ. Amen. If you belong to Jesus, this is your meal. This is your reminder. This is your coming home. This is your being swept up. This is your walking alongside. So come forward. Receive the body and blood of Christ on your behalf.